When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today it's Tuesday, January 11th, 2021. This is Alf, the author of the Macro Compass, and I'm here with the one and only Tony Greer, who's the editor of the Morning Navigator. Hey Tony, how are you doing, man? Alf, how are you today, brother? What's happening? Yeah, it's, it's all nice and dandy, you know. We have all these rallies going on. Um, everything that has a name attached to it, it's rallying apparently. You want to call it, it's bonds, gold, Bitcoin, tech, cyclicals, you just call it, everything is rallying, right? Yeah, I mean, we can, we tend to have days like that whenever there's a presence of Jerome Powell on the tape anywhere, if you ask me. If the Fed chairman speaks, markets are buoyant. I think that's his job. Probably. So today he showed up at the Senate Banking Committee um, and he gave, you know, his speech um, there. And, you know, he said a couple of interesting things. But before we talk about what he said and the reaction of the markets, I just want to make sure that the uh, audience actually listens to an interview I had, a clip to an interview I had with uh, Rosenberg, David Rosenberg, where we actually talked about uh, his view of the Fed and what he, he thinks something pretty interesting. Let's listen in for a second. I never understood why the Fed gave up on transitory. Maybe they just should have defined it. Because to me, you know, in the overall realm of economic and financial history, uh, one to two years to me is still pretty transitory, or maybe we need uh, another word for it. But you see, the household sector is telling you that beyond this year, with the supply bottlenecks and the commodity pressures that we've seen, um, that uh, their two to five year view is inflation to average 2.4%, uh, which actually is the low end of the range of the past several years and below where it was when the pandemic started. Uh, and so something's happening here that's very interesting. We all bellyache about inflation, uh, but then again, it's staring us in the face. But the bond market doesn't move on what is staring us in the face for the here and now. It's really looking uh, out many years. And you got to believe, you got to believe that if the Fed starts to pull the rug on liquidity and understanding that this has been a liquidity bull market in residential real estate, in cap rates, in corporate credit, and in the equity market, what is going to happen when interest rates start to go up? And the key here, again, is the shape of the yield curve is half as steep as it normally is at this stage of the cycle before the Fed starts hiking rates. So uh, we might not be beyond three or four rate hikes before we start talking about recession pressures. And the full interview is available on the essential tier at Real Vision. But Tony, you gotta believe, as David Rosenberg said, that if the Fed pulls liquidity out of the market and they try to hike three or four times, What's going to happen, Tony? I mean, David thinks everything is going to go belly up. Do you have a different view? 
No, I think we're going to be in a, an extremely violent rotation, Alf. That's my that's my plan for this year. You know, coming up until uh, you know the first several sessions of the year, call it all five sessions of last week, essentially, um, we saw natural resources outperform technology, and I really think that technology is going to be at the center of the rate rising storm for equities. I do believe that it can have an ultimately negative effect on the indices, but I still think that you're going to have some bull markets within the indices and natural resources and oil and metals and mining, um, probably in grain sectors and a lot of ag sectors that are going to hold together just fine. And while net-net, it may take the S&P lower, I don't think that we're in a curl-over de-risking phase by any stretch of the imagination just because we're talking about higher yields. All right, so uh, let's talk for a second about higher yields because that's the backbone of your bullish cyclical commodities thesis, right, Tony? So I pulled up a chart for the viewers and for the listeners. I'm just going to walk you through the chart. It simply shows the number of 25 basis point Fed hikes that the, the future market is pricing in by December 2022. And, you know, in October, we're talking literally about, let me see, something like three months ago, the market was pricing one hike by the Fed by December 2022, just one hike. And now we are at 3.7 hikes by December 2022, which means three hikes for sure and 70% chance of a fourth hike in 2022. So obviously, Tony, the market is adjusting to uh, this perspective that the Fed will deliver in tightening. Don't you think that, you know, um, this is already priced in the bond market to a certain extent, and therefore, uh, as well in the commodities market, can this not be a, a headwind to your cyclical commodity bullish thesis? It sure can. It sure can, Alf. And I'm on the lookout. I guess I'm on the lookout. There's a lot. There's a lot to go over within that, right? But I guess I'm on the lookout the most for you know, for example, Powell's comment that uh, anything about the balance sheet. You know, where he says the runoff may be sooner or faster than the last cycle. Um, you know, he said that uh, the balance sheet is far bigger than it needs to be, which is the God's honest truth, probably. And, you know, when he tr he lobs bombs like that out about actually taking down the balance sheet, the market seems to create the perception of the sort of most hawkish scenario. Right. So I feel like right now, what we're, as you said, Alf, three months ago, when Powell was hanging his hat on transitory inflation and not really changing his posture on that, we weren't looking at any rate hikes for this year. And now, as soon as we get here, remember that was via Jerome Powell very much pivoting, you know, the Federal Reserve ship into saying, okay, fine. This inflation looks like it's going to be with us for a little while. We're going to use our tools to manage it. And therefore, you know, the market took a dip on that just with the prospect of higher rates and a little bit less liquidity that we've seen. But as you can see, for example, I do believe, yeah, I do think that these rate hikes are very much getting priced in. I do believe that we'll hit rough patches in the economy and even for the inflation cycle next year that will swing that pendulum maybe back to, oh, you know what? Maybe it's just two or three rate hikes this year, maybe four was a little bit aggressive because I still think that this year out we're going to see the push and pull of inflation and deflation. And what I can get excited about if the Fed hikes are priced in 
is what I'm seeing today where the dollar can back off a little bit. Because if the dollar can, God forbid, back off, Alf, then I am going to step on the gas pedal with both feet of my natural resources trade. Well, I, I can see why, why, why you would do that. I mean, the, the point I'm trying to pass across to listeners here, Tony, is that, uh, as I tweeted today as well, uh, actually, it's very difficult to jump on a trade if the news is already out. And the news that the Fed will hike is already out, and it's fully priced in the market. There are 3.7 hikes priced in. 10-year bond yields you know, and 30-year bond yields, they try to bridge 1.8 and 2.1%, 2.15%. Yeah, well, they hardly could. Of course, you know, they could go a little bit further, but it seems that the market sort of uh, woke up all of a sudden to the idea the Fed's going to hike and it's going to taper their balance sheet, reacted accordingly in the bond market, and commodities as well, actually, cyclical commodities overperformed defensive commodities like gold. I pulled up another chart, and I want your, your opinion on that, Tony, which shows the oil to gold ratio. So I literally measure oil prices instead of dollars, I measure them in gold. It just shows the you know over around the performance of oil against gold, that's the blue line, and 10-year yields in America. Uh, you can see they correlate very well. Not a big news if the economy is pretty hot and it's running nicely and nominal growth is priced to go up, then oil consumption is also priced to increase and therefore oil prices go up, ceteris paribus, and actually gold doesn't perform very well in that environment and vice versa. The economy is slowing down, real rates are dropping, aggregate demand is not that strong, then gold tends to perform oil and yields drop. But look at the, at the basically the scissor which is opening in this chart between 10-year yields and oil to gold ratio. So oil, oil has overperformed gold over the last few weeks, few months, actually, as we, as we have pointed out. But 10-year yields cannot keep up the same performance on the way up. I mean, why is that? That's a great question. You know, that, that question for the inflation people like me, that's the question that's kind of, uh, you know, plaguing us about the bond market, Alf. And I, luckily, I don't, I don't try my hardest to understand the bond market. I, I don't have that kind of capacity. I just try to use it as a mechanism to help me understand what the world thinks right now. And when I look at sort of when I look at two-year paper, which has gone bidless with this most recent leg of the commodity rally, and maybe the ten-year there at the center of the curve isn't going along with it as much. Maybe there's a lot of curve adjustment going on right now. But I feel like when I look at, you know, I, I still see 10-year yields breaking out of a pennant flag and going higher. We're just bumping into some resistance at one and three quarters where we had a high um, in the middle of last year, early in the year. That makes sense to me for the bond market to sort of slow its slide as yields get to that price. Um, I think that no matter what, the long end is probably going to be kept, at, you know, in check as it always has been, because that's really the mechanism by which the whole mortgage application and housing boom has been running. So I think that they'll be loath to take that punch bowl away in the long end, while in the short end, they have to just, you know, really make sure that they're making adjustments for the inflation that's hitting the tape and the commodity inflation that we see. I'll be really interested out to see where bonds shake out at the end of this week. You know, we've got CPI and PPI coming up tomorrow and Thursday. And the reason I focus in so much on those numbers more as an equity ranger is because if you remember last May, we got that first headline CPI number that was way out of uh, above expectations. We had a huge sell off in the stock market 
and we registered the most significant downside tick extreme of the year where just everybody was bailing out of stocks. Now, that was at an S&P price of 4,000, right? We're much higher than that. So it proves that the market can bear higher yields and all this inflation. I just think that we're at a little bit of a crossroads trying to decide what the Fed is going to actually do and what they're going to be able to do in terms of tapering and, you know, maybe bringing down the balance sheet a little bit. To me, that would be, you know, something that would cause me to make a lot of sales in stocks and sort of lighten up the load a little bit. But, you know, the way things have gone now, it feels like the market can bear really whatever the Federal Reserve is throwing at us. We've got a lot of economic, you know, sort of cyclical pent up strength that I think is going to be let loose as we come out of this pandemic. And I'm just hoping that things hold together and we can get cyclicals holding up while uh, technology falls in equities. And that's really the way I'm looking at it, if that's fair. Wow. So much juice in this answer, Tony. So let, let me try to break it down a little bit. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, one very interesting thing that you said um, is, you know, when we when we talk about the bond market, we're literally talking about two different beasts, the short end and the long end. Yeah. So, you know, two year yields are now 0.9 percent pricing in basically four hikes by the Fed by the end of this year. So that part has reacted. Yeah. And also the fact that, you know, consumer spending and the labor market is still relatively buoyant. So. Um, it's true that you know the fiscal stimulus effect is probably fading away a bit, but the consumer side of it and the labor market side of it are picking up the tab, and you know so the Fed can literally try to react to uh, to, to the front end and tighten monetary policy. So that's one side, but the other side is actually the long end of the bond market, which isn't following up that much, which is making the curve very flat. That one is driven by long term forces, and there the market is much more dubious yeah. that things have actually changed in the long term. But what drives commodities, as you were saying before, and we are trying to overlay these two components, the bond market and cyclical commodities and defensive commodities, is you know more about the supply and demand imbalance short term, at least for the front contracts of these commodities. So you know those two things can actually square. Commodities can rally, uh, even if the long end of the bond yield mar- of the bond market doesn't manage to break on the upside. Sure. So that's that's quite important. Yeah. And you know, and the other thing is obviously quantitative tightening, which um, is the topic du jour. And a few months ago, nobody was talking about it, and we were even doubting whether the Fed would go for tapering. Um, you know, quantitative tightening is a quite of a different beast compared to tapering. You're not increasing at a slower pace the purchases; you're literally halting the purchases, and you are reducing the size of the balance sheet. Which means the mechanism for which before you drew collateral away from the market, you just put it in the black hole, which is the Federal Reserve balance sheet. You just removed it from the private sector risk-bearing capacity, and you gave the private sector reserves. You know, just zero duration, zero risk stuff that sits there on the balance sheet. You created this imbalance, and now you reverse it. Yeah. So you basically say, "Sorry, guys, I'm going to take the reserves back, and you have to absorb the private sector." more bonds, more duration risk, more credit risk, and it's all back to you guys. That's quite a different dynamic. That's that's pretty relevant. A hundred percent. You know, I I, uh, I operate every single day out from the perspective of, of two things. Number one is waking up bullish because I'm a secular bull and I try to keep that position with me no matter what I'm doing. And number two is the Fed is inflating assets. And if you have assets, you're going to be OK. Right. 
So if they start cutting down the balance sheet, you can make the argument that they are obviously not in the mode of inflating assets as much on their own, but rather letting the market do it where the market can. And so I think that they're benefiting a little bit from that commodity strength that that's been ignited. Um, you know, that was the strength that they've been trying for for the last since the great financial crisis, right? And it has been nothing but a deflationary war. Um, a deflation story winning that war for so long. Now we've got a couple of different dynamics with a much different energy market than we've had in 10 years. Um, you know, we've got, we're heading into the commodity, not to switch, I guess I'm switching back. Uh, I don't want to switch to uh, different asset classes like that on you, but we've got a very different situation under the hood than we had you know, even a year or two ago where, well, you know, it's hard to compare to the lockdown situation, but there's a lot of economic momentum coming out of here that quite honestly, it seems like with the S&P at 4,700 and two-year notes yielding 90 basis points, the market is okay with it. So like you said, I'm dying to see what is going to be the direct cause and reaction to what happens if they, you know, start nibbling away at that eight point something trillion dollar balance sheet. Right, that that to me will be something that will definitely cause me to hit some bids with my natural resources trades and take a fresh look. I think that's what the whole predication of this bull market move has been about. So I am definitely on my toes, given that's a new topic that we're talking about now. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. And actually, you know, we, we often talk about indexes too. We talk about, you know, the SP or the Dow Jones, but. As you said, under the hood, a lot is going on, right? There is a lot of rotations. There are, you know, a lot of sectors that are overperforming or underperforming. And uh, the topic of the last two weeks has been the underperformance of the tech market, or we should say, actually, um, the uh, highly overvalued, non-profitable crap, which sits in stuff like Arc and the likes, right? So, um, and all of that actually. Basically, the, the financial theory behind that, supporting those valuations, extreme valuations, should be that um, because the cash flows are so, so much further in the future, you can't even see them in some cases like Rivian, for example. But because they're so far away in the future and you're discounting them uh, by a certain discounting factor, then if this, is, this discounting factor being risk-free real interest rates goes up, then the present value of these cash flows goes down and therefore stock prices go down, right? So these are the most high beta sensitive asset classes to um, rising real interest rates. I just plotted this chart as well for people that are listening and not seeing it. It shows uh, how real interest rates inverted in the chart actually um, lead um, tech stock valuations. So I just took the five-year real interest rates in America, that's blue, I inverted it. So if the line is going down, then real interest rates are actually going up. And um, well, basically I plotted it against tech valuations. So there's quite a good correlation if real yields go down and tech valuations go up and vice versa. Now, real yields have been moving higher by 40 basis point year to date, 
which has obviously made valuations on, well, the most valuation intensive side of the stock market nosebleed, and therefore stock prices also move down. So this rotation under the hood, Tony. What what do you think about that? Yeah, that's my you know that's the, that's the call for the year, really, Alf. That's what I'm. Uh, that's where I've got my chips placed on the table right now. Um, I've begun shorting some technology. Um, you know, didn't didn't short it well, but kind of just decided that as yields are obviously not backing off, that that might be a decent place to have a more balanced book. And by putting out some technology, obviously, we got to this point where Kathy Wood's arc became, you know, a focal point and everybody is, you know, going through the due diligence of understanding all of her withdrawals at the end of every day. And it just must be really hard to operate under a microscope like that. But unfortunately, she's, you know, replacing, you know, liquid tech stocks with smaller, less liquid holdings. And it hadn't worked out for her for a while. So, you know, that that is sort of between ARC and between Bitcoin and Ethereum backing off, you've got that side of the equation nailed, right? Everything that is the highest risk technology has got to back off. You look over at the Bloomberg Commodities Index and like oil, they've gone what I call blue sky trading, which is where a security in a bull market dips to its moving averages and maybe trades below them and then regains its moving averages and resumes trend. So with the commodity sector doing that, in fact, while Powell is talking about, you know, that the balance sheet is too big, he's, you know, today is probably the most hawkish Powell I've heard since he's been in office. And I'm shocked that the the market's hanging in there. Gold's rallying. Commodities are rallying furiously. And if you look at the tape, the only thing different today is that technology is recovering with the natural resources rally. You know, and that's something that we haven't seen. And that fits with the with the bill of every time, you know, we have a Fed chairman speaking. It's like an all risk on rally in every asset class you can find. Um, So today, you know, you've got commodities at the top of the leaderboard, you know, being led by oil, oil services, um, gold miners and Bloomberg commodities. But you've got technology right in there with them, which is just short covering from the damage that's been done. So there's going to be this ratcheting effect, Alf, that I'm expecting, where we're going to hit technology, the S&P is going to back off, natural resources are going to keep rallying, and the S&P is going to hold its ground. Net-net, it's probably going to have a harder time rallying than it has in the last several years when it was full punch bowl for the low valuation stocks, as you beautifully put together there. So now, you know, with that dynamic changing, I think you really got to be on your toes more than ever. And, and this is coming from someone that's really a, a non-shakable secular bull. So I'm, my, my, uh, my guard is up and I'm very much watching this commodity trade stay on its feet right now while, you know, um, while we talk about raising rates. All right, Tony. So we have a couple of interesting questions from the audience. And I'm going to ask you if you're ready to fight, because a couple of those actually put uh, us one against each other on the stand oh, no. because they they pointed our views, which can be conflicting, of course, because otherwise we won't have a market, right? If everybody right. agrees. So we have Gonzalo and also Daniel actually asking basically the same question, which is Alf is long bonds and long tech and Tony is rather long cyclicals and hard assets. Um, is there an asset you would an asset allocation you would rather agree on that would do well in both of your views? And what development would have to occur for each of them to change their mind? You take it first, Tony. 
Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, if you know, I would have said something potentially. You know, it's getting away from you know you, you if 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 you are bullish bonds, I'm a little bit bearish bonds. But like I said, I don't have a position on. I use them to tell me something about what the market thinks. I would have thought something like financials might be a middle ground where you and I could agree. However, if you think rates are going to back off quite a bit, maybe you don't want to be in financials. But you know, that's that's kind of the direction that I go if it turns out that you know some of the natural resources stocks that I've chosen, whether they're you know in the ag sector or whether they're one of the metals and mining sectors, if that doesn't work out. I would think that I'd be pivoting for me in a higher rate environment, looking for financials to survive, et cetera. Um, but you might not be bullish those. I'm not sure if there is a direct overlay in between our uh, our views right now. Alf, what do you think? What would your answer be? Well, maybe the overlay is in the long-term asset allocation. So I always want, I want to stress out this point. There are two ways to approach markets. There is a long-term asset allocation and there is a tactical long-short tilt, right? Those, those can be very different because the time horizons can be very different. Totally. So in the long-term asset allocation, as pointed out in the Macro Compass Endgame, which is my latest article, um, I talk, for example, about the role of gold in long-term asset allocation portfolios. So you know, I treat that basically as a positively convex payoff that costs me a certain premium or a cost opportunity to hold over the long term but it gets the tailwind from negative real rates. And in case of a monetary reset, it protects part of my wealth. So gold then has a role in my, port in my portfolio long-term. Does it mean I'm long gold right now? Nope, I'm tactically short gold right now because I expect real rates to move up. They have already moved up some 30 to 40 basis point year to date. So there can always be a difference between the tactical approach and the long-term approach. Those don't always match. So tactically, I'm afraid that Tony and I uh, do not fully agree. So, for instance, as, as you could read on the macro compass, I was, you know, tactically a short real rates via via tips, inflation break evens, short gold, short Bitcoin, uh, rather long dollar cash or the safe side of the tech market. So, let's say the quality tech names like Apple, they've also suffered. So, the, I'm bleeding on that position, but I'm doing okay on others. So, overall, it's doing okay. But as Tony is long, let's say the the more cyclical side of the commodities sectors and um, short nominal rates on those, let's say we, we we don't agree, but it's fine not to agree, right? That that's what makes a market. Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more with you on um, you know if I delineate, I, I I'm a trader, Alpha, and I've always I've always made that clear, and I don't call myself much of an investor, but if there's one thing you know that I kind of put in the same category as my 401k retirement plan. It is definitely my physical gold position, right? And that's definitely a place that we can overlap and say, you know, over the long term, it makes sense to hold for several reasons, right? I mean, fiat currency risk, fiat currency hedge, um, you know, uh, physical uh, hold physical metal for the possible continued, um, you know, beating up of the dollar and the dollar's purchasing power. So that's one of the positions that I actually have on my view matrix that never goes away is long physical gold. So I like that you brought that up. And what if I'm if I'm able to think longer term and sort of, you know, I always answer, uh, you know, if you woke me up in the middle of the night and I had no positions and I didn't know what was going on in the world and you forced me to buy something, I would say, OK, I'll buy some gold. Well, at the end of the day, until 1971, uh, we used to have gold pegging credit creation, right? I mean, every time you wanted to 
print govern government deficits or banks wanted to expand credit to the real economy, they could, of course, but there was a peg to gold for every new dollar or euro, or but there were no euros back then, but that any dollar or any other fiat currency that was created effectively. And all of a sudden, we decided to ignore that after 1971. So we start expanding credit creation as much as we want, effectively, because there is no hard peg to gold anymore. But there is still a soft peg to gold anymore, as I like to say. And at some point, uh, it might be uh, that the monetary reset comes. And you know, therefore, you want to own some position, I think, structurally in your long-term portfolio, which doesn't mean you can't be short tactically. People should not confuse a tactical view and a long-term asset allocation. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I have a more uh, pressing question for you, Tony, on 2022, because I think this can drive a lot of your. Uh, performance in your uh, long uh, cyclical commodities asset allocation, which is, what's your take on inflation break-evens for 2022? I still think that they're going to be driven higher, and most of that, most I, I think that if I'm able to zoom the lens out a little bit, Alf, where where you look at where sort of um, break evens and yields bottomed during the lockdowns, and we're sort of held down artificially, if we can use that word, um, even though they were held down for a reason, but you know, break evens and yields were pinned to the to the zero boundaries essentially for so long. And now last year was the year that they really started getting off the mat, right? And they're getting off the mat coming into a potentially inflationary environment for commodities. So that's why I think break-evens are going to continue to be driven, even if tech backs off, who cares, right? Like big tech is overvalued, you know, it's priced to, you know, it's priced to deity, Right, it's priced to be behaving like the market gods. So if it backs off, it's probably something that makes sense. So the break-evens to me are going to be driven by the commodity inflation that I think is set up to have one of the best years that it's had in a long time. You know, we've got structural deficits in—I uh, won't say structural deficits. We have low inventories across the base metals markets in copper and aluminum that's extremely relevant we've got low inventories in uh, gasoline and a lot of the products here in the US very low inventories in Europe in fact we found out today much lower than we thought so there's going to be a real a necessary bid to the fossil fuel energy complex and if we are going to pivot toward carbon neutral there's and ESG. There's obviously going to have to be a bid to the base metals complex because you have to build your electronic infrastructure and your battery packs out of something. So I'm still contesting that those are going to be the drivers of inflation. Those commodity, uh, the dearness of commodities, that structural tightness, and the pivot into ESG without tremendous commodity stocks. Right. So we're going to go in and we're going to have to build these. Um, 
power charging stations all over the place and tremendous battery capacity. And we don't have a lot of copper and aluminum on the shelves. We're going to be buying our lithium and um, rare earths mostly from China. So we don't have pricing power. To me, all that stuff is really inflationary. So I can see break evens remaining in the uptrend basis, having them come off this flat line for such a long time. And the fact that I think commodities are in a good enough condition of their own that they can rally. So I'm so happy that you made this analysis, Tony, because it perfectly proves the point that cyclical and structural views can be pretty different from each other. So yeah. what Tony's here uh, bringing to the table is a picture for the next decade, maybe two decades, the zero net emission target is actually going to be potentially met, or the target is to meet it between 2040 and 2050. So we're talking 20 to 30 years down the road. And um, on the Macro Compass newsletter, I also posted a chart that shows um, the estimate for copper consumption or nickel consumption, for example, uh, required in order to meet uh, the net zero emission target. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's uber high compared to what we are doing uh, these days, right? So if you expect these sort of long-term drivers, this is a structural view you can hold. That doesn't mean that cyclically you can you cannot have large drawdowns in these cyclical, cyclical commodities that you can trade from the bearish side too. So that's the cyclical part, and there is a structural side, and those views can sometimes differ, but you know uh, it, it just depends on the time horizon, right? That is really beautifully stated, Alf. I, I mean, really well stated because one of my one of my um, themes for this year is don't forget to make sales on rallies. Right. And I say that a lot more this year than I did last year, because I think this year, if we're going to be tackling inflation, the path higher is not going to be linear. Right. And the path higher in commodities is going to have all of a sudden it's going to be weighed by a lot of speculative interest is going to happen. Right. We're going to push the uh, commitment of traders positions all the way to overboat long. Right. And that's when you have to say, OK, I better be the first one out of here. Otherwise, I have no idea where I'm going to be selling my oil or my other commodities. So that's one of the things that while commodities are trending well above their moving averages this year, instead of sitting back and letting them go to the next level in 2022, I'm going to be make sure that I feed the ducks a lot more often so that, as you say, when the positioning gets overdone and the, the natural resources are due for fall within that cyclical trade, I don't have to get beat up on the slide and I can sit there and bid for them when they back off. So I agree with you that it's going to be a volatile year and a lot of speculative positioning is going to come into play in the commodity space this year. Be nimble, guys. Be nimble. Thanks, Tony, for a great daily briefing. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for watching the Real Vision daily briefing. Actually, I'll be back tomorrow again. So get used to me. Uh, I'm going to be here online with uh, Darius Dale. We're going to talk about the CPI print, which is going to be the highlight of the day for sure tomorrow. And uh, as always, the conversation continues on the exchange. Thanks, Tony, for uh, this interview. Alf, great job. Great job today. I really enjoyed this conversation. See you soon, guys. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.